Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto. I'm your host Ahmed Belaghi and in today's episode we have Samson Mao who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Blockstream. Today's podcast is pretty special because of two reasons. We recorded from Singapore at the World Blockchain Forum and the CEO of the Dubai Blockchain Center was also invited to the forum and he joined me as a co-host in this episode. In this episode, we discuss the early days of Bitcoin in China, what Bitcoin satellites are and why it's a good idea, what Bitcoin's role should be in the context of the Lightning Network, and its relevant applications for streaming services and in third world countries. Before we jump in, I'd really like to thank those who've been supporting the show. I remember you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe, rate and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. We really enjoyed this episode and we hope you do as well. Hello everyone and welcome to Encrypted. My name is Ahmed Belaghi and I'm here in Singapore at the World Blockchain Forum and today I have a very interesting co-host with me today. Everyone should know him. Say hello Dr. Marwan. Hello everybody. That sounds a bit creepy. <laughs> I guess Dr. Marwan needs no introduction. He's the CEO of the Dubai Blockchain Center. And as soon as I told him I'm going to be interviewing this person, he was like, oh, I want to be your, your co-host for this one. I was like, yeah, for sure. Today we are joined by the one and only Samson Mao. Say hello. Hey everyone. Good to be here. How are you doing? I'm great. Singapore is really nice, but really hot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, well, it's much better than Dubai, trust me. So how's the conference for you? So far, so good. I gave my talk and I think it was well received. All right. So could you give a quick introduction about yourself, how you got into the industry and what, what you've been doing? Sure. So I read up on Bitcoin in about 2013 and I got into it, I guess, officially in early 2015 when I joined uh, BTC China. And from there, you know, I worked at BTCC for a couple of years as the COO and ran the exchange in mining pool business units. And after BTCC, I joined Blockstream and I'm the chief strategy officer at Blockstream where I handle marketing, biz dev and product. All right. So it's funny because I had a similar background. I went to China in 2015, joined the industry in 2016, but I never really saw you much in Shanghai, although you were based in Shanghai. How were those two years for you? Like, what did you see? Um, were like, what what really struck you when you were working at BTCC? And because you were the only, the only for two years before, like, sort of Joseph, September the fourth, and all of that. What what was the biggest thing that that struck you? I guess the biggest thing is really just handling the China market. There's an incredible amount of demand for buying Bitcoin and you have to keep your infrastructure running and able to support onboarding new users. And I guess also just the craziness of the landscape in general, dealing with regulators, the PBOC, and just constantly changing dynamics, the fork wars. That was like a really intense two-year period. Really, really intense. I, I remember, so I, I remember the one time there was this like really big debate. It, there was like, I think nine people on the panel. Roger Veer was there. It was at this co-working space. You had the guys from Bitcoin Core as well. And it was just a mess, right? It was like 
like the the biggest event you have to go to um, if you're in Shanghai. And it was just, it's funny, like if you think about two years ago now, it's like people bickering like kids, right? Because <laughs> these four cores are not the the biggest problem now. All right, cool. So and I, I did have a really interesting question, which I never really figured out. Well, because I left China before the September the 4th, but why did BTCC eventually shut down? But it's peers at Hobi and OKCoin on the other exchanges didn't. So BTCC was, it's still running actually. It was acquired by a Hong Kong company. Uh, I don't think it made a lot of waves in the news. I think it might have, but a lot of people didn't really pick it up. So it was acquired and then it slowly kind of ramped down. But when it was acquired, it was basically just a mining pool and the US dollar exchange, which I launched before leaving. And they've kind of gradually shrunk it. I think they shut down their mining pool, I would say, six to eight months ago, mm-hmm. which is a tragedy because I, I built that thing. Yeah. And then uh, they... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. But the, the, the sad thing is it just kind of slowly ramped down over time and mm. it's still there. I don't really know what they're doing, but for all intents and purposes, it's basically gone. Well, interesting stuff. I guess I got the answer now. All right. So could you tell us a bit more about what Blockstream is? Um, because it's been getting a lot of publicity, both good and bad within this industry. And also what, what you what you do there as well. I mean, people, well, I, when you see these crypt, crypto, crypto Twitter, right? I just see and I just look and you just see all these trolls. I don't get involved because I don't get it as much. But yeah, of course, Blockstream is an important company. So yeah, tell us, well, give us an overview to our listeners about what it is. Sure. So I would just describe Blockstream as a Bitcoin infrastructure company or Bitcoin and blockchain infrastructure company. So what that means is we're working on a lot of the lower level protocols, Bitcoin protocol, the Lightning Network, which is also a protocol, things like smart contracting, simplicity, and just building up infrastructure around Bitcoin to make it more robust, more resilient. We have a wallet out there. It's one of the most secure wallets on the market. It's Blockstream Green. Previously, it was Green Address. And we have Blockstream Satellite, which I talked about at the conference yesterday. I guess in a nutshell, everything we do is to kind of make Bitcoin stronger. And we have the Liquid Network, which is our flagship product. So my question is, why build Bitcoin satellite, right? Is it for accessibility for areas that don't have phone coverage or internet connectivity or things like that? Or is it for other purposes that we cannot, you know, foresee right now? Right. So you didn't go to my talk yesterday. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's a multitude of reasons why we're doing Blockstream Satellite. And the primary reason is because we need it. So Blockstream Satellite is a satellite service that is broadcasting the Bitcoin blockchain around the world. So you can be anywhere, have a home satellite dish, like a you know direct TV dish, and you can receive the Bitcoin blockchain. And it cuts down your cost. You don't have to you use up your bandwidth cap. And Bitcoin's blockchain per month is like five or six gigabytes. And if you're in I don't know, some countries where it's prohibitive, it can't eat up a large chunk of your bandwidth and it can be expensive. But yeah, primarily it's for us because we need it. We are building on top of Bitcoin. We're working on Bitcoin protocol. We're building Liquid, which is a side chain anchored to Bitcoin. So everything we do kind of ties back down to Bitcoin and we need Bitcoin to be resilient. And Blockstream Satellite helps with that because it prevents network splits. And if you're building the f- future of a financial system on top of Bitcoin, that system's got to be very robust. So you don't want a network split where you know, half of the world thinks it's on this chain and half of it's on another chain. Or more likely, it's one country that's split off because of undersea cable being cut or something. 
But you know, that's not a really reliable system. But this can help a lot, I think. Satellite usually implies that it's one way, right? It's just downstream. Does your solution provide both upstream and downstream? So right now the service is downstream. So we're broadcasting. You can send transactions. There's a few services out there that lets you broadcast a transaction. You can send it over SMS. You can send it through a mesh network like Gotenna. You can send transactions through Iridium satellite kits, you know, the, the two-way satellite kits. And you know, potentially in the future we could look at something too. Okay, so in, in really simple terms, it's a node in space that broadcasts transactions. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. So the way that Blockstream Satellite is designed is we're leasing space on commercial geosynchronous satellites. So these are satellites up uh, 35,000 kilometers. Mm -hmm. These are not the CubeSats, the ones that are about 2,000 kilometers up. So, you know, Starlink launched. um, They're working on building out their constellation. And you can kind of see them in the sky. You can see a trail of uh, Starlink CubeSats. But you can't really see these ones. These are really far out there. They have massive solar panels, and that makes them far more powerful. And what that allows us to do is have lower user requirements. So the end user can use those home satellite dishes. They don't need anything complex. If you want to track a CubeSat, like a LEO satellite, Low Earth Orbit satellite, you need specialized hardware that's actually rotating to track these things. And also with geosynchronous satellites, then you can actually have global coverage with just a few satellites. Whereas with uh, CubeSats, you need thousands of them. Okay. But I think when you're talking about a node in space, I think some projects have launched a node in space. It's probably for some token chain or mm-hmm. something, but it doesn't really have any meaning because okay. it's a CubeSat. It's okay. not a geosynchronous satellite. And that means its orbit will degrade. It'll fall back down to Earth in about two years unless you boost it. So it's a gimmick. But down the road, it's possible to have a Bitcoin node somewhere. You know, If there's a new satellite, commercial satellite being launched, we can see if we can actually put one on before it goes up. And the benefit, I think, of that is having you know, a node in space that is isolated from everything else. So you have like a, a backup copy. And I think that's probably why people want to put a node into space. All right, that, that is interesting. And to, to go back to your point about Blockstream being a Bitcoin infrastructure company, could you list other Bitcoin infrastructure companies and the reason why I ask this is because Bitcoin is meant to be sort of a decentralized network. And a lot of people might have the view that Blockstream is sort of this indirect mother company that funds Bitcoin Core and uh, the Bitcoin sort of infrastructure and development. So could you list other companies that are, are yeah? Yeah, there is a lot of that sentiment floating around okay. that, that Blockstream is very tightly associated. We we do believe in Bitcoin strongly, and that's why we focus on all of our effort on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And in terms of companies in the space that are similar to us, it's hard to picking one. Oh. We are kind of we're we're really big. We do a lot of different mm-hmm. things. So we do have contrib- contributors to Bitcoin mm-hmm. full time on staff. Okay. So in that sense, we're kind of like Chain Code. They're just a dedicated, I guess, lab working yeah. on Bitcoin, and they're not to my knowledge, focusing on monetization of their efforts. So we kind of have that segment. We have you know, our team working on Sea Lightning, Christian Decker, Rusty Russell, mm-hmm. and Lisa Naget. And you know, that's kind of like Lightning Labs or Async. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Liquid, which is a sidechain, I guess. Closest company that you could compare to that is, uh, or not company, 
but association would be maybe I don't know, Hyperledger or something like that. Even RSK maybe? Maybe. So I don't think there's any direct comparison okay. to, to what we do at Blockstream. My question is, to us in Dubai, how can Blockstream fit in? And also for third world countries, do you think either the streaming service, you know, the blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain streaming service or any other, you know, services that you see that are, you know, applicable either to Dubai as one of the leading cities in the world when it comes to blockchain technology, do you think that's applicable there, given that most of our blockchain use cases right now are private chains? So I'm not that familiar with Dubai, so it's hard for me to say what we, what is applicable for what we do to Dubai. And when you say streaming service, do you mean the satellite service? Okay. So I guess the interesting thing you could do with Blockstream Satellite is enabling mining in regions without internet. So you can get the blocks, and when you find a block, you can broadcast it over, I don't know, just like a standard DSL line or or even through SMS if you want, or Iridium satellite network. But you don't need to have a very strong connection because you're getting the whole blockchain. And our latency for Blockstream satellite is actually quite good. We did some calculations and we think that it should be able to support mining, remote region mining. So maybe solar panel mining in the, in the desert or something. Yeah, I, I quickly want to follow up on that. So because you're saying that the satellite is used to reduce sort of Bitcoin's dependency on the internet, so and to go back to Marwan's point about third world countries, are you guys basically picking up data where these transactions are happening, which is using the satellite? Like, do you have, are you guys recording that data at all? So what, what data do you see from it that is really interesting that just, it's like wowing you? We see nothing. It's a broadcast service. So there's no way for us to know, except for people, enthusiasts that post pictures themselves setting up a salad dish. And there's a pretty big community out there setting up (laughs) these dishes around the world. In in Latin America, I think they have a a, a truck with a dish mounted on it now, traveling around, educating people about Bitcoin and showing how cool the satellite is. But it is a a privacy-enhancing thing, Blockstream Satellite. So your if you're running a dish at home, you're running a node fully offline, getting your data through Blockstream Satellite, then your ISP doesn't know you're running a Bitcoin node. It's you're kind of off the grid to them. And if you're broadcasting your transaction through another broadcast service, like I think we have a transaction broadcast service in Blockstream.info, it's our block explorer. Then you can kind of transact Bitcoin off the grid. So it is privacy enhancing. We don't know who is getting the signal. It's a broadcast, and you get it. I don't know who you are, and we also don't want to know who you are. We we believe in privacy. How do you monetize? It all looks like free service. You spend money, of, of course, on developers. You spend money on other stuff like Liquid platform. How do you monetize your services? We're not really focused on monetizing Blockstream Satellite right now. It's one developer, basically, and that's it. And leasing the satellites, leasing the space on the satellites is not as expensive as you might think. So it's not a high priority for us to monetize it. We did set up a data transmission API. So you can actually broadcast data. You pay over the Lightning Network and you can send messages and anything over the satellite service. And we see a little bit of uptake on that, but it's not, it's more for an interesting use case rather than monetizing the satellite service. But, you know, we have some other ideas down the road, but the core of the service will always be free, which is broadcasting Bitcoin blocks. There's a lot of people very excited about Lightning, including myself, but I think there's not a lot of visibility around what Lightning is and how it brings value and, and, you know, especially speed of transactions and, you know, settling quickly on the blockchain stream. Can you talk more about that? 
I think I actually skipped over your point before, like how, how this tech can help the third world. I think Lightning can help a lot because you're removing a lot of friction from transacting Bitcoin. You're removing the, essentially you're removing the transaction fees. The transaction fees become negligible and you have uh, instantaneous transactions. So people in the third world can earn Bitcoin over Lightning and you can develop a circular economy where people can earn and spend very fluidly and freely. So I think that's probably the biggest benefit. In terms of educating people about Lightning, I think yeah, there's definitely always room to improve. These are new technologies and it's always hard for people to understand new technologies. Even Bitcoin is still tricky to explain. My easiest way to explain it is I say it's digital gold. But I mean, <laughs> it only explains it on a surface level. If you really want to get into it, you need days to explain to somebody what the significance is. A lot of people argue that Bitcoin is only a store of value and not transaction. With Lightning, do you think that will change the, that perspective? I think Bitcoin is everything. It is a store of value. It is a medium of exchange and it's a unit of account. Because it's a digital asset, it can do all three things. It's just at different levels. So for the Lightning Network, you're using SATs, uh, Satoshis, as, as a the primary unit of account, and people are already denominating things in sats, you know, like tipping people, 100 sats, or you know, playing these lightning games. It's all denominated in sats. So in that sense, Bitcoin is a unit of account. But medium of exchange, I think lightning is the way to go, or uh, even transacting on a sidechain, could, you could make it a medium of exchange. But I think you just have to use Bitcoin in the ways that make sense. If you're moving large chunks of money and you want to do it very securely, then you have to pay for that security. But relative to moving, say, gold, moving large amounts of value on the Bitcoin chain is dirt cheap. It's $5 to move $200 million, right? What, in which, which world can you do that with gold? You can't. I just came from London and somebody asked uh, Andreas Antonopoulos about, you know, at the end of your 2140 or close to it, there will be no mining fees. So there will be only transactional no fees. Rewards. No rewards. Yes, mining rewards. There will still be fees. And do you think a transaction will cost as much as it does now? Or do you think the whole landscape by 2140 will be completely different that this will be irrelevant? I think it's a valid concern. With all the halvings, eventually, you know, the block award does go to almost zero, right? It'll become negligible. It's a long ways away, but it, some people are worried, you know, what's happening in after a few halvings, right? And the, I think the transaction fees do have to pick up and make up for that. And what that means is transactions will become more expensive, but that is the design of Bitcoin from day one. And I think if people are familiar with how it works, they understand the mechanics of it, then they'll just come to understand an on-chain transaction you know, decades from now <laughs> will be expensive, just like it is expensive to move gold. But it's never going to reach that kind of level. I think to move gold, it will cost you millions of dollars to move hundreds of millions of dollars, <laughs> which is far more expensive than, you know, say, a couple hundred dollars for a transaction. But I think with other layer two scaling solutions is not going to be as big of an issue because you will have lightning still. You'll have maybe potentially many different side chains for different purposes. You could have a merchant side chain and merchants could subsidize the, the fees on that network. So we'll see how it evolves. But I think for the main chain itself, yes, fees do have to go up over time to make up for the block reward. 
All right. Continuing on the lightning talk. So there is uh, probably no use case for something like a fork of blockchain as an example, like Bitcoin Cash, if we have lightning, right? Because that's their whole argument, at least one of the arguments. Well, you never did need Bitcoin Cash. If you just wanted to, wanted to have cheap, free transactions, you could just use Dogecoin, right? The thing is, like, it never made sense. It was always just some religious belief that Bitcoin needed bigger blocks. And then they proved themselves, right? They made the bigger blocks and no one cares. No one's using it. And the price is going, <laughs> trending down to zero. So that's the proof. But I guess this is, again, I, I don't look at it on the negative side. I look at it as the beauty of Bitcoin technology. Anybody can fork if they have disagree with the argument. They can only, you know, you basically pay with your mining and pay with your, you know, loyalty to that, you know, chain. If somebody believes in Bitcoin Cash, we're all for it. Go and mine with it, use it, and, uh, you know, that's why how you pay for it. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is a marketplace of ideas, right? And with something like Bitcoin, people decide with their money what they want to put it in, and it shows. <laughs> I was about to ask you, like, give me your biggest, like, your, your best Bitcoin shill, but I guess this little, you know, the, the, these, this little question and answer was just a, a good indirect Bitcoin shill. So <laughs> thanks for that. So to turn the to turn to a different topic before you close off. So you, your background is in gaming, and of course, a lot of people are trying to utilize blockchain for gaming, particularly in sort of items, or even utilizing crypto, um, actually paying for items using crypto, or basically just in you know using things like meta transactions, for example, to enable people who would like to use a DApp, you know, really easily, but they use sort of the concept of meta transactions and the biggest use case for this currently now apparently is gaming. But I don't know, you're, you're the better person to ask, what, what do you think is the biggest opportunity here? So I, I really dislike the idea of blockchain games. Okay. I, I think uh, using a cryptocurrency or a crypto token in a game is far better. Okay. With the blockchain games, what they're trying to do is put items on a blockchain. But for example, like CryptoKitties, you don't actually own the item. It's owned by the game company still. What you have is a token that points to an asset in the game. And if the company disappears, then so does the asset. You're left with a token. That's not really fun. So you're taking these very centralized systems and trying to pretend to be decentralized. There was one, one game I looked at, a blockchain game I looked at a few, few days ago or weeks ago. It was a card game and they said their marketing is totally different from their terms of service. Their marketing is like, we give you full ownership because we use a blockchain. And in terms of services, yeah, we own everything. <laughs> so a lot of these things are just pure scams. And I think a lot of game companies, it's similar to any other industry. People just want to jump in with the blockchain buzzword and be forward thinking or relevant. And it doesn't really work, I think, in the end. I just want to pick your brain. Uh, what about streaming and micropayments? So streaming and micropayments, like if you watch yeah, streaming video or games or any other kind of streaming, where you, if you don't watch the whole movie, you just pay for what you watched with micropayments. Do you think that makes sense even for Bitcoin? Yeah, definitely. I think that does make sense. Micropayments with Lightning Network for streaming, or I think you could even pay per word reading an article too. But there's a lot of opportunity to explore streaming micropayments and what they could do. And that also applies to games as well. Maybe it's well, like Stadia, right? It's streaming a game. You could charge per second of game streamed. 
that could get very expensive for some people I know. All right. That, no, that is really interesting. So to wrap this up, what are your thoughts on Libra? I saw your uh, your Twitter, but I just wanted to... So with every project out there, it's usually the marketing that makes it scammy. And okay. I, I think it's similar with Libra. They're trying to present themselves as a cryptocurrency when they're not. It's, it's the same thing as uh, PayPal, yeah. Alipay, WeChat Pay. Mm-hmm. It's a centralized service, and it's designed in such a way that it's probably never going to be decentralized. But they're making this claim like, will be decentralized later. But, sure, but the way they've structured it now is highly unlikely it'll ever become decentralized. The incentive structure, the regulatory framework that they're working in, it, it just doesn't look like it's ever going to be a real cryptocurrency. But I do see the value in it, which is it'll open the eyes of a lot of people around the world to what cryptocurrencies are and possibly bring them into things like Bitcoin. So it will have some net benefit, I think, but it's not really innovative and it's not interesting at all for me. Stable coins, your thoughts? I think Libra is a stable coin, right? It's going to be based on a basket of currencies. But stable coins, like, they have a very, very useful function. They're for traders that want to exit out of a position, sit in a stable coin, move their funds around from exchange to exchange easily and without needing a lot of overhead saying working in the banking system to do a transfer. So they're very valuable for trading. It's a tool for trading. Similar like how Liquid is a tool for traders too. You have LBTC, which you can move around faster from exchange to exchange. What about the risk they bring into the picture? Because a lot of these exchanges that had stable coins had inflated, you know, or the people behind them has inflated how much they have in actual physical currency. That, that is a concern a lot of people have, but I don't really see it as a, a major issue. For a stable coin, what you really want is liquidity. If you have a, a market between multiple stable coins like USDT to another one or USDT to USD, then you have that liquidity. And if you have a big pool of liquidity and you're using it as a tool for trading, it actually doesn't matter if they're if they don't have all the funds at any time because you have that pool. It's just people rec- recognize it as a stable instrument and they're using it to do something. But the bigger question is, do the banks actually have it? If you collateralize your stable coin with a trillion dollars, does the bank actually have that trillion dollars? Can you actually walk in there and say, give me my trillion? No, they don't. So you're kind of worrying about nothing. Just use the stable coin to trade and you're good. All right. So this is a question that I always ask before I finish off. And that is basically, do you eat your own dog food? I.e., do you use Bitcoin on a daily basis? Or if you, you know, you vouch for privacy or decentralization, do you use dApps? And how often do you eat your own dog food? <laughs> dApps is another topic. I, I think a lot of companies are trying to make dApps just because they want to dap, a decentralized thing. But decentralization is a means to an end. It's not the goal. You want to be decentralized to be censorship resistant. If you can sell coffee in a coffee shop, do you need a decentralized coffee shop? No, you get your permit and you sell your coffee, right? If you can manufacture some product somewhere else and import it legally into the US, you don't need to have a decentralized manufacturing network, right? You don't need to build a tunnel somewhere. You just 
do it because it's legal. But yeah, for the other question, eating my eating dog eating the dog food, I do use Bitcoin, but I don't believe Bitcoin is something you can use right now for daily transactions. It doesn't make sense. I do use Bitcoin over Lightning Network to play games and experiment with different things, tip people, and I. I dog food uh, one of Blockstream's products, which is Liquid Securities. So my game company, Pixelmatic, we're actually launching a security token and we're using that platform that Blockstream is building. So I do believe in dog fooding. All right. Awesome stuff, Samson. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. If anyone wanted to actually get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? I'm on Twitter probably more than I should be. Uh, my handle is at Excellion. And I guess that's the best way to find me. You can ping me and I'll answer if I can. Don't be shocked by the, the 98,000 followers he has. He, he'll, he will reply. If he doesn't, we'll, we'll ping him. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your stay in Singapore. Thank you.